I got a call from <clears throat> Dr. Lane Dennis, the president of Crossway Books. He was in Dallas <clears throat> for the uh, annual convention of the Evangelical Christian Publishers. I should say publishers. I typed that. It's Publish, Publishers Association, I think. ECPA. And uh, they have annual book awards. They have seven categories, you know, best Christian fiction book, best, uh, you know, book on this topic or that, family book or whatever. And there's a best Bible category. And there were three study Bibles and some other Bibles published last year. But the uh, ESV study Bible won the best Bible published uh, award. So they were real happy about that. And then... um, a few minutes later, out of those top seven winners, they got a Book of the Year award that they were going to award, and that went to the ESV Study Bible as well. So, uh, and that, that's, the, that's all Christian or evangelical publishers, all their books published in 2008, and uh, this was awarded the best book out of all those books. So, uh, we're just, again, saying, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Um, the, the article in the Dallas Morning News said um, it's the first time a study Bible has won the overall prize book of the year in the 30-year history of the Christian Book Awards. So we're thankful, thankful to the Lord for that. And I think that means, my, my guess is that means that it'll get more visibility just even outside normal evangelical circles that uh, Secular libraries will probably buy, you know, book of the year for Christian publishers and uh, university libraries and things like that. So we thank the Lord for that. Schedule today, the millennium, chapter 55. And we'll talk about amillennialism and postmillennialism, I hope. Depends on the time. And then uh, next week, the millennium, the premillennial view and uh, April 5th, final judgment and hell. Uh, And then no class on Easter. And then uh, April 19th, uh, according to this schedule, the last chapter in the Systematic Theology book, the chapter on heaven. Then what? Those of you who have stuck with this for 57 chapters, well, I think what we'll do on April 26th is we'll have a final exam. (laughs) No. (laughs) No, I won't do that. If you're going to seminary, there is an oral exam before you graduate, and it's, it is, take, you know, tell about the three views of the millennium, where they support their arguments from Scripture, and what your answer is to them. Or, or talk, talk about the doctrine of heaven, where is it found in Scripture, and what is your answer, or the doctrine of the Trinity, or the deity of Christ, or whatever. And students have to, they really work to be prepared for those, but uh, we won't do an exam here. I don't know quite what we're going to do. Ron Dickinson and I, and uh, no doubt our wives, and uh, maybe some of the other class leaders are going to talk. I have some ideas in mind, um, but I think it'll be interesting. I think it should be fun, but uh, wait and see. We'll let you know. The millennium means 1,000 years. comes from a Latin Expression meaning thousand years, and it comes from that comes from Revelation 20 verse 4. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. What does that mean? And when is it going to happen? That's the question that we'll be dealing with this week and next week. There are three main views in the history of the church. They're called by these words amillennial, postmillennial, and premillennial. Now, how can you remember what these mean so you never have to worry about it again? That is, understanding what those words mean. The thing to remember is, what is... More important than the millennium, what is the big event at the end of history that we're all looking forward to? It's Christ's return, says John Wiederquist. That's correct. So now, these three words, amillennial, postmillennial, and premillennial, they have to do with Christ's return. Like a premillennial, if you're talking about Christ's return... Well, do you think that means that Christ would come back before or after the millennium, if he comes back pre-millennial? Pre-millennially. Yes, you would think before, because pre means before. You would be right. 
Premillennial means Christ comes back before the millennium. Then postmillennial means Christ comes back after the millennium. Okay? What would amillennial mean? It, no. Amillennial means there's no millennium. You guys got it all wrong. I, I should think of a word in English. Uh, uh, no, it, it, word, it, 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 uh, amoral means no morals. Good. Thank you, Jerry Boer. Uh, agnostic, no knowledge about God. Um, amorphous means without form. Um, uh, there must be a thousand words like that. Hmm? Atypical. atypical means not typical. So amillennial means not a millennium. Okay? How could people think that when they've got this verse, Revelation 20, verse 4? It says they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. <clears throat> well, they have an explanation for that. And that's, that's the idea. But those are the three views. So let's look at the passage where this controversy is focused. And that's Revelation 20. Whoops, oh, it starts at verse 1. So if you have a Bible, open to Revelation 20. If you don't have a Bible, I didn't know if I should do this or not, but I printed it out on the back of your handout. Not that I mean to encourage you not to bring a Bible, but I just thought, oh, it's there. Okay, so let's start. Let's read through Revelation 20 and read about this thousand years. Then I saw an angel. Now, this is John, the Apostle John. He's seeing things that are happening, going to happen um, or visions of heaven. And uh, he's telling what he's seen. And it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So there's the first time we have a thousand years. How's the volume? Is this too loud? We're good? Okay. Bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the pit. What pit? The bottomless pit in verse 1. Threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. So here, here's the purpose. So that Satan might not deceive the nations any longer. Until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not received, who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So see, during this thousand years, <clears throat> Satan is bound. He's thrown into the pit. He doesn't deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And then these people who hadn't worshipped the beast, they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So, the first view, and the one that I'll spend a fair bit of time explaining today, is amillennialism. And that is the idea that there is no future millennium. <clears throat> So, on a diagram, it looks like this. Church age. That's where we are today. Where are we? Are we at the beginning? Not the beginning of the church age. Maybe in the middle. Are we near the end of the church age? I don't know. But 2009 is someplace here in the church age. At the end of the church age, amillennialists believe that Christ suddenly returns. This chair is a picture of a throne, meaning there's a final judgment. Believers are raised from the dead. Unbelievers are raised from the dead for judgment. And there's a new heaven and a new earth. And then the eternal state. That is, you know, what things are going to be like forever. That's a really simple diagram. Christ comes back and it's all over. Basically, that's what it means. <clears throat> well, but you say to an amillennialist, what about all this stuff in Revelation 20? Binding Satan, throw him into the pit, sealing over him, doesn't deceive the nations anymore. These people come to life and they reign with Christ for a thousand years. 
when's that going to happen? Where's that on your chart? Oh, they say, it's happening right now. Revelation 20, 1 to 6 is now. Say it's figurative language, a thousand years, that just means a long time. So, a lot of people hold this. Westminster Seminary, where I went to seminary in Philadelphia, most of the faculty members held this. Number of very very conservative Bible believing Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Lutherans would hold this, and uh, it's a respectable view in systematic theology. It doesn't seem so at first, but here's here's how they argue for it. I, I don't hold it. I did hold it at one point, a long time ago. Okay, <clears throat> they would say Revelation 21 to 10 describes the present age. Why? Because Satan's influence over the nations is greatly reduced as opposed to the Old Testament when the nations were all in darkness. Now there are churches in every nation. They would say that Christ's reign is now in heaven. Doesn't he say, Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me? And they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. They would say, that means those people who have died and they're reigning with Christ. They're Christians who have died and they're now in heaven. And they're, they're reigning with Christ a thousand years. So that would be their viewpoint. And a thousand years is a figure of speech for a long period of time. And they would say, well, this church age is going to continue and Christ could come back any, any moment. Um, and the church age is going to continue until Christ comes back. And then everybody's going to be raised and judged and, and there'll be new heavens and new earth. I'll come back to that in a few minutes. But let's just look at the post-millennial view next. The post-millennial view says Christ will come back after the millennium. After. See, here's the church age. And you know what? The gospel is so powerful. And the teachings of the Bible about how to transform life and society and culture are so powerful. And the power of the Holy Spirit is so powerful that the church is going to grow and grow. And there's going to be greater and greater influence of the, of the gospel on the earth. And eventually, it's going to be a wonderful millennial age on the earth with showing how the gospel triumphs and makes progress. And uh, for, I don't know if it'll be a thousand years, but a long period of time, maybe a figure of speech, maybe a thousand years, there'll be uh, just, it'll be a, basically a Christian earth. And uh, then Christ will come back, and then there's resurrection, judgment, new heavens, new earth. Jonathan Edwards, in the early history of the United States, held to this view. And a number of early Americans held to this. They were so excited about the opportunity of founding a new nation and uh, the influence either of Christianity or of Christian principles on the nation and uh, opportunity to set up a, a, a righteous kind of government free from oppression that they had experienced before. They thought, you know, this is going to get better and better. And... And people who are very optimistic about the spread of the gospel can lean toward post-millennialism. I actually only know, I think, one person today, personally, who holds to post-millennialism, maybe two or three. Ah, I guess I might know two or three. But John Jefferson Davis, a friend of mine who teaches at Gordon-Conwell Seminary in uh, Massachusetts, does hold to post-millennialism, and he has argued for that. And when they make their case, it starts, oh, yeah, this is exciting. Everything's going to get better and the gospel's going to triumph. So they would say the progress of the gospel and the growth of the church will gradually increase. There'll be significant Christian influences on society. There'll be a millennial age of peace and righteousness on the earth and it'll last for a long period of time. And at the end of this period, Christ will return and then there's judgment and new heavens and new earth. So that's post-millennialism. I don't see a lot of you shaking your heads, yes, but... You know, and, and what happens is when, when there's wars and struggles between nations, post-millennialism fades. But when sort of things settle down in the world and people are excited about progress and growth and, and, and you know, revival and things, and times of revival, post-millennialism tends to pick up a little bit. Anyway, okay, then there's premillennialism. So this is, the, I'm giving you a quick overview of all three. The premillennial view is the one that I personally hold. Christ comes before or pre the millennium. So here's the church age. 
here we are in the church age, and Christ comes back. What's this T right here? Oh, that's a big controversy that we'll get to later. That's the tribulation, period of great suffering. And uh, some people put that over here. So there are two views on that, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But let's just leave that aside. Church age, Christ suddenly comes back. We are caught up to meet Christ in the air, 1 Thessalonians 4. Immediately, like within the space of a few minutes, we come back then with Christ to reign on the earth for a thousand years. We reign with him. And this is just Christian believers who are resurrected, get new bodies, and the earth is renewed. And then there's a thousand years where Christ is reigning from Jerusalem over the earth, a kingdom of peace and righteousness, but not everybody's a believer. Some are believers, and some are just obedient to Christ's rule, but in their hearts, they don't like it very much. Okay? And then there's a rebellion at the end of the age. Uh, Satan is let loose, and then there's battle. And then finally, uh, then a resurrection of... And then Christ defeats his enemies, and then there's a resurrection of unbelievers and final judgment and a renewed earth and the eternal state. So this is premillennial because here's Christ and it's before the millennium. Does that make sense? The present church age will continue until a great tribulation comes on the earth. After that tribulation, or something before, at the end of the church age, Christ will return to establish a millennial kingdom. Christ will physically uh, reign as king on the earth. Believers will receive glorified resurrection bodies and reign with Christ on earth for a thousand years. That's you and me. We'll see the new heavens and new earth. Satan will be bound at the beginning and cast into the bottomless pit. But at the end, he'll be loosed and along with many rebellious unbelievers who have been submitting to Christ, but they didn't really like submitting to him. They'll gather for a battle against Christ, but they'll be defeated. And then Christ will raise unbelievers for final judgment. And then we'll enter into the eternal state. That's the premillennial view. Now, there's a different view of... I'm sorry, of the tribulation, where the T goes here. This is pre-tribulational premillennialism. Now, how you could remember that is, here's Christ returning. Does this before or after the T? It's before the T. So it's pre-tribulational. Christ comes back before the millennium, secretly catches all the believers up into the clouds to be with him. But we stay there for seven years in heaven with Christ, during which time the earth is a really difficult place on which to live. There's a time of great suffering and tribulation. But many, many Jewish people are converted, and they proclaim the gospel to the rest of the world. And then Christ comes back after the seven years and physically reigns on the earth, and then everything else looks the same as the other premillennial view. So this is dispensational premillennial. This is more common among the faculty at Phoenix Seminary. It's not my own view, but it's a more common view. And it's more common probably at Scottsdale Bible Church. And uh, Jerry Jenkins, Tim LaHaye, Left Behind series, they hold to this. And so does the Schofield Reference Bible. And so does Dallas Seminary and Talbot, for instance. The church age will continue until unexpectedly, secretly, suddenly Christ will return partway to earth and then call believers to himself. 1 Thessalonians 4, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Then, when Christ comes, he'll take us, he'll return to heaven with the believers who have been removed from the earth, and there will be a great tribulation for seven years. During the tribulation, many of the signs that precede Christ's return will be fulfilled. There will be a great ingathering of the Jewish people. At the end of the tribulation, Christ will come back and reign for a thousand years. And then after that millennium, there will be the defeat of Satan and the resurrection of unbelievers and judgment in the eternal state. This view is found almost exclusively among dispensationalists who wish to maintain a clear distinction between the church and Israel. The reason is you get the church up in heaven and Israel on the earth, and so different prophecies can be fulfilled for Israel on the earth. Okay, so now, before I go on to detail on amillennialism, I was just thinking this morning before I came, what's the important thing? 
to remember about all this and before we try to sort out all the details. The important thing to remember is that Jesus is coming back. He is coming back, and the end of history is certain. He's coming back. He's going to reign on the earth. He's going to be king over all the nations. And he's going to establish his purposes, and his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom that will not pass away. Application to us, number one, keep on in the Lord's work and don't be discouraged because it's going to be, it will be worth it all, says that old hymn, when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his his dear face, all sorrows will erase. It will be worth it all when we see Christ. That's, That's the number one thing to keep in mind, that Jesus is coming back. And therefore, as Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, inasmuch as you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Jesus will come back, and he's going to make it all worthwhile. It'll all pay off. It'll all, you'll all, everything you've done for him, you'll, you'll, you'll see, wow, thank you, Lord. That's fruit for eternity. That's the number one thing. Christ's sure return guarantees that, and it's encouragement to us. Number two thing, I suppose, just for our own lives, to be sure our lives are right, that we're doing what the Lord wants us to do, because he's going to cut back suddenly, and then this age is going to end. And our opportunities to do what we could for him in this age will be done. So if God is putting on your heart something that he wants you to do, if he's calling you to some kind of care for other people, maybe even quietly, or you don't know, calling you to a prayer ministry, calling you to care for people by phone, calling you to visit other people, calling you to work in some youth ministry, or some ministry to the elderly, or some ministry to the poor, or some missions ministry, calling you to something. He's been putting that on your heart. Don't delay. Take the opportunities he gives you. Well, he gives them to you and offers them to you because there's going to be a time when it's all the opportunities to do that in this age are done. And the third thing is, don't get discouraged when you watch TV and, see, and read the newspapers and see, oh, Iran's got nuclear weapons, and North Korea has nuclear weapons, and world economic crisis, and da 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 da, da you know, conflict in this country, conflict in that country, Russia's rearming. We can get really worried. We don't know what's going to happen in the interim, but the final result is sure. And so Christ's promise that I will come back and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, that should give great assurance to our hearts. And it's in that context that we view all these other things and do, and we pray, and we do what we can to help overcome difficulties and troubles in this world and bring about the Lord's purpose insofar as we can. But then our hearts are at peace. Okay? Before I go on to amillennialism and in detail, any questions about just clarifying that overview? Comments on that? Okay. Okay. And you know what? I, I, I see, I just, I'm just going to say one other thing. Thank you to Daryl Delhousse for teaching for me two weeks ago, and thank you to Ben Burdick for teaching for me last week, and I heard good reports coming back from both classes. And I just have in mind, Ben's here this morning, this is a godly, gifted man. If you hear of any church in any part of the country who wants a pastor who's going to be a remarkable use for the kingdom of God and looking for a pastor, but they've got to have somebody who they, 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 they don't want, they're not going to have anybody who, who they won't get anybody who will compromise on God's truth or God's word. They'll get somebody who's strong and firm, but he's kind. Uh, Get in touch with Ben because he's still I mean, he's working at his job at, at the airport in security. But he's, uh, he's he's the Lord has timing for Ben to find a church. But we're just waiting here. So okay, here comes the arguments for amillennialism. Ben, stand up so people know who you are. Okay, <laughs> good. You know Ben and and Angela, who is a baby coming when May. 20th? 
25th, May 25th. Okay. So maybe it'd be good if he didn't get a church before the baby came. <laughs> okay. And they met in this class. So, all right. Here's the arguments for amillennialism. I, um, I went to Westminster Seminary. They held this view mostly, and I kind of thought, oh, that's right. So here's, here's the arguments for it, and this is what I, I used to hold a long time ago. First, you know, there's only one passage in the Bible that talks about this millennium, and it's really hard to understand. It's all futuristic kind of language or apocalyptic language. I guess they wouldn't say it's futuristic, but it's symbolic language. And, and it only, there's only one passage. You know, if there's going to be a thousand year future earthly reign of Christ, don't you think the Bible would talk about it more than one place and then in a disputed passage at that? And so, uh, Revelation 21 to 6, and here's how they explain some of those things. Well, we'd say, well, what do you say about this fact that Satan is bound for a thousand years? And what do you say about seeing these souls who have been beheaded for Christ? And what about uh, came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years? And what about the first resurrection? How do you explain all those? And a millennialist will say, I've got an explanation for all those. Because they're all talking about right now, the church age, Revelation 21 to 6. First, the binding of Satan. Well, sure, that already happened, they would say. Um, uh, It's just another way of talking about what happened in Matthew, when Jesus mentioned in Matthew 12. In his earthly ministry, Matthew 12, 28 to 29, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Look at that, binds, binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So they would say when Jesus came, he bound Satan. And it meant that he would deceive the nations no more. That is, think of the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God's truth was revealed to the Jewish people. But the nations outside of Israel were in darkness as far as God's truths were concerned. They were just living in idolatry. Hardly, just very occasional, a few Gentiles saved, but hardly any Gentiles saved. And then at Pentecost, the gospel is proclaimed to all the nations of the world. And don't most of you come from non-Jewish backgrounds, so doesn't that show that Satan has been bound and the nations aren't deceived anymore. And that's, that's what, see, it says, let's see right here. Bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. That happened during Jesus' life. And then they would say, point B, since John sees souls of those who had been beheaded and not physical bodies, this scene must be occurring in heaven. It can't be resurrected believers on the earth. It says, I saw souls of those who had been beheaded, verse 4. And then the phrase, the first resurrection, verse 5. It, you know what? This doesn't mean a bodily resurrection, they would say. They would say, this refers to going to heaven to be with the Lord. Not bodily, but coming into the Lord's presence. It's what happens when you die. When you die, you go to be with Jesus in heaven. And that's the first resurrection. And, uh, and so those people who have died are in heaven with Christ right now. Well, what about when verse 4 says, they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years? Well, they would say came to life means came into the presence of God in heaven. That's what happens when people die. They come into God's presence. And then they would say, look, you premillennialists, you say that Believers are going to be raised when Christ comes back at the beginning or before the millennium. And a thousand years later, the unbelievers are going to be raised. And there's, how can you say there's a thousand years between believers being raised and getting new bodies and unbelievers being raised and coming to judgment? The Bible only talks about one future resurrection. Look at this. John 5, 28 to 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Doesn't that look like it's one resurrection? And Acts 24, 15, there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Doesn't that look like one resurrection? And Daniel 12, too, predicts this. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Doesn't that look like just one resurrection? What do you do with separating it by a thousand-year millennium? 
And then, you know what? <clears throat> you people who believe in a millennium, and I'm millennialist, would say, it's just weird. <laughs> I mean, I didn't put that up there in the outline, but that's what they... <laughs> the idea of glorified believers who have these new resurrection bodies that will never grow old or die, and they're beautiful, they're handsome, they're just physically strong and fit, and they're, they're like, they're, there's, there's no sickness or disease in them, and they never... The, and they might even have a brightness, a, a, a light about them. The idea of those kind of people living on earth together with sinners who just have bodies like us today, it just sounds too strange. It's too difficult to accept. And Louis Burkhoff, who has just an excellent systematic theology that I used to teach from, says it's impossible to understand how a part of the old earth and of sinful humanity can exist alongside a part of the new earth and of a humanity that is glorified. How can perfect saints in glorified bodies have communion with sinners in the flesh? <clears throat> How can glorified saints live in this sin-laden atmosphere amid scenes of death and decay? It just seems too unbelievable to him. And then there's another argument. They say, look, if you people believe in a, in a millennial reign of Christ, where Christ doesn't come back to the earth, well, wait a minute. If Christ comes in glory and he's reigning on the earth from Jerusalem and everybody sees him, how can anybody still persist in sin? Won't everybody in the whole world believe in him? And all believers are reigning with him and helping him in administration of his worldwide kingdom over all the nations. I mean, wouldn't everybody believe they'd see how righteous and good Jesus is and how good his reign is? How can there be? A, how can you say there are unbelievers in fact, they're growing for a thousand years and they're going to have a rebellion at the end of the time. How can you say that? And then and number five, they say, look, what's the purpose of this? We, we can understand, you know, throughout history, God had the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve and everybody was perfect. And then there was sin and there was a flood and there was judgment. And then there was the call of the Jewish people in this long period of time in the Old Testament where God is getting ready for the Messiah. And then Christ came and he died and he rose again, paid for our sins. And uh, then the gospel is proclaimed to the earth. That's it. That's all that needs to be done. Now let's get on with heaven. Let's get on with the new heavens and the new earth. Why do you stick in this thousand years extra where things aren't quite settled yet? They're not, they're not all sorted out. There's no purpose for this. And then number five, um, it seems like when the Bible talks about these future events, they're all jumbled together and they, they're all going to occur at once. So those are the arguments for amillennialism. Can you see some of the force of that anyway? It, doesn't, it isn't so unreasonable. But <laughs> I finally gave it up. And I just thought these arguments are not really persuading me. First, when you say there's only one obscure passage that teaches a millennium, I say, well, how many times does the Bible have to say something for it to be true? I think the Bible only needs to say something once for it to be true. A Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, it's the only time it talks about it, but it's true. And you know what? You call this an obscure passage. We would say, it's not obscure. It says people came to life. They reigned with Christ for a thousand years. What well, part of that can't you understand? <laughs> came, life, thousand years. Those are pretty simple words. Not obscure. just means what it says. And then, um, and then uh, premillennialists would say, you know what? It's not just one passage. There are a lot of other passages that talk about a time that's different from 2009. It's different from today. It's different from what I see in the newspaper, but there's still sin, and it's not the eternal state. There's sin and there's sickness and stuff. And, and, so, and so we're going to talk about those, uh, where, where, uh, where the rebellious nations are crushed, they're ruled with a rod of iron, or the sinner dies uh, a hundred years old, uh, and the infant, 100, 100, infant dies 100 years old, or there, there are things that just look different from this present age, but there's still sin and rebellion. And then, um, and then here's, here's where I just differed on Revelation 20. And that is, 
When I look at Revelation 20, it seems to me that the binding of Satan is much more extensive than what took place during Jesus' earthly ministry. Um, I know that there was some restriction on Satan's activity when Jesus came, and I'm glad for that. There was casting out of demons by Jesus and then by his disciples in a way that just wasn't happening in the Old Testament. There was a proclaiming of the gospel to the nations. I agree. But you know what? When I look at this language, even though I admit that some of it may be just kind of, I don't know, kind of, um, I don't want to use, I don't want to use the word, well, figurative or poetic because it's talking about spiritual things with physical terms. But when you look at the verses, it says, he sees the devil, that ancient serpent, and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the pit. That's the bottomless pit from verse 1. Threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him. It doesn't look to me when I look out at the world like that's what's happened to Satan today. I mean, it's got to be, if it's figurative language or poetic language, it's poetic language for something. And what it's something is has to be removal of all influence from the earth. That's what, you, you take him, you throw him into the bottomless pit, you shut it, you seal it. That means he's not touching the earth. He's not doing anything on the earth. He's just taken out of the earth. And that just isn't today. Just, all right, give me any day's newspaper, turn on any TV channel. It's just not. Okay? So it looks like there's something future coming when Jesus is going to reign and there's going to be no influence of Satan or demons on the earth. And it's going to be a good time on the earth. Much more wonderful time. And the bottomless pit. And the total removal of Satan doesn't fit the present world situation. First Peter 5.8 says your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That's this present age. So I just don't think they've got it right on interpreting the binding of Satan. Acts 5.3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Second Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. First John 5.19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's not bound and thrown into the bottomless pit and shut and sealed over. That's still strong influence of Satan on the earth. So it doesn't seem to fit with what the New Testament itself says about Satan after um, Pentecost. And, and the world deceived so that he should deceive the nations no longer. It indicates a deception going on in the entire age. And uh, so Revelation 12:9, Satan who deceives the whole world was thrown down to the earth. Now, what about the fact that John saw souls? I saw souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Christ. I don't think this means it's set in heaven because uh, they came to life. And when they come to life, that means those souls got resurrection bodies. And it's called a resurrection. And resurrection doesn't mean just coming into God's presence. Resurrection in the Bible means always, always uh, means um, uh, bodily resurrection. And John starts out the the very first verse, John 20, or Revelation 20. I saw an angel coming down from heaven. So it isn't that it's taking place in heaven. It's coming down on earth. Oh, yes, here we go. The word word resurrection, anastasis, never elsewhere means going to heaven or going to the presence of God, but it's bodily resurrection. And when it says they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years, that Greek word, zao, as a son, as aorist tense there, it, 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 it takes the sense of a bodily resurrection. It's just used of Jesus' bodily resurrection, but it never means come into the presence of God. So these amillennialists are giving these words senses that they don't take anyplace else. That's not a good argument uh, for in favor of a position when you have to give a specialized meaning to a word. What about when they say there's only one resurrection? In the future. When I looked at those passages again, it seemed to me, I'm not sure that you're right about that. They don't say, some of them, whether the resurrection of believers or unbelievers will be separated in time. But John 5 hints there is a possibility of two. The time is, an hour is coming when all who are in the tomb will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Could those be two separate times, even though it says an hour is coming? Could those be two separate times and Jesus just looking in the future? Yes, I I think we can speak that way. For instance, 
if I have a class of seminary students and I say to them, your day of graduation is coming. They understand that even though some may graduate in 2009, some may graduate in 2010, some may graduate in 2011. I could say the day of res- the, gra- the graduation day is coming for all of you. That doesn't mean it's just one day. It's- or I talked about that oral exam that they have to take at the end of their seminary time. I could say, you know, there's an hour coming when you're going to have to take an oral exam. Well, some of you may be at 11, some of you may be at 9.30, some of you may be at 11, some may be next year, and some may be next year. And you know, there's an hour coming when you have to take an oral exam. That is, I can speak that way of the general truth without meaning that it's all happening at the same time. And I think that's what, does that make sense? You following me? Okay, and so I, I think that's what Jesus is saying. There's a resurrection coming for believers and unbelievers. Now, what about this argument that it's just too weird, it's too strange for glorified believers and sinners together? I, I admit it sounds a little strange, a little unusual. Um, but you know, Jesus lived with his glorified body for 40 days after the resurrection, and apparently many Old, Saint, Old Testament saints were raised during that time, Matthew 27, 52 to 53, uh, that came out of the tombs and appeared to many. So it's not impossible and, you know, <laughs> I think just like people, whatever they grow up with, they think is normal. Our kids think that everybody always had computers because they just grew up with computers and video games. And that's why they can program the video re- recorder without reading the instructions. And I can't even when I do read the instructions. So. <laughs> Because that's just the life they grew up with. And, uh, and so people at the beginning might think, whoa, look at this. All these resurrected, glorified people on earth following Jesus. And many will probably become believers then. But the hardness of people's hearts is such that not all will. And so it'll be different, but I don't think it, that's a persuasive argument against it. People persisting in sin in spite of Christ's reigning presence? Well, yes, that's possible. Judas lived with Jesus for three years and still betrayed him. And many Pharisees saw Jesus' miracles, and they even saw him raise Lazarus from the dead, and they still didn't believe. And then, this amazing passage, Matthew 28, 16 to 17, some disciples in the presence of Jesus after he'd been raised from the dead still didn't believe They went to Galilee, the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, the eleven disciples. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So some persistent unbelief in the presence of Christ is hard to understand, but Satan himself fell from an exalted position in the presence of God in heaven. Ultimately, sin is irrational. Ultimately, sin does not make sense. And so people should believe in Christ. I think many will, but also there will be many who do not. Because it's the Holy Spirit who has to change people's hearts. What's the purpose for a millennium? Well, God may have several purposes in mind, but it would certainly show God's good purposes in the structures of society. That is, when Christ reigns on earth, the laws for businesses will be just and fair. The laws for criminal activity will be just and fair. The laws for how government should conduct itself will be fair and just. The, the, The laws for education will be right and just. Uh, the, the laws uh, for, um, I don't know, international trade will be fair. It'll show that God's good purposes, when they work out, have marvelous, marvelous results in human society. And that will uh, vindicate God's righteousness and be for the glory of God. And then I've got another point here that's kind of a big picture about the whole Bible. It is God's good pleasure to unfold his purposes and reveal more of his glory gradually over time. What I mean by that is, doesn't God always stretch out his work over time? Think of how he answers prayer in your own life. It's not always right away, is it? But then you pray and you pray and you wait and then there's something good that works out. Or how he guides you to different decisions that you're going to make or to a church that you're going to minister in or whatever. It's, it's over time. Think of how God created the world. 
Oh, it took six days. Didn't do it all at once. How did he call the Jewish people? Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, then 12 tribes. Gradually over time, wasn't it? How did he send the Messiah? Waited, 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 waited centuries until the fullness of time had come. And then he sent forth his son. How did he spread the gospel through the world? Gradually, over the course of centuries. So God's good purpose is to unfold the wisdom of his plan gradually over time as we see more and more of his glory. And I think that the millennium is another aspect of that. And we'll see, wow, this is more of how good you are, God. The final objection to amillennialism is I just don't think that there is a satisfying explanation of Revelation 20. And it was I was reading through arguments back and forth on Revelation 20, and I was reading uh, an, an essay on that written by a man named George Ladd, um, a New Testament scholar, and I just said, I just can't answer his arguments. This looks like it's a, a literal future resurrection of a thousand years. Okay, we've got time just for like two or three minutes of questions, and then we'll sing and uh, we'll do postmillennialism and get into premillennialism next week. What do you think about all this? <laughs> Joyce, way in the back. Just hold on a second, Joyce. The microphone is coming. If I understood you correctly, both. Uh, it's not on. <laughs> okay. If I understood you correctly, I'll talk louder. Yep. <laughs> if I understood you correctly, there, now it's on. Um, both of the two, the first two, the amillennial and the postmillennial, take the view that it's getting better yeah. on earth. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, the postmillennialism does, does for sure. Amillennialists could go either way. Okay. They could say it's getting better or worse. Okay. What do you think? Well, I think that's hard to believe. <laughs> you know, just in our own country, or not, maybe even worldwide, it just yeah. in reading literature, for instance, yep. something that I've observed is that writers from years back could write with a general knowledge of Scripture because it was part of basic education. Yep. That's history. That's yep. gone. Yep. You know, and that's just one little thing. And like you said, the newspaper, the TV, and so forth, it's, hard, it's just hard to believe. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, we just watch the values that people hold, that our government holds, and so forth. It's hard to believe that it's move, moving in the right direction. Yep. Despite the fact that there are more church, you know, more missionaries. Yep. And all of that. Yep. See, you can go both ways. You can say, oh, there's spread of evil all around the world. But then you can say, look at Latin America, look at Asia, look at Africa, where the growth of the church has never been happened this fast at any time in history. So there's revival going on in some parts of the world, too. But I, I agree, there's a lot, of, lot to be discouraged about. I'm with you, Joyce. Okay, what else? Over here, Daryl. Okay, and. I have a question. Uh, it's kind of maybe a two-part one, but, um, you know, we in the Old Testament, when we talk about uh, the Jews the, that died, where are they? <laughs> I think the believing Jews who died are in, Christ, are in God's presence right now with Christ. And then the, when Christ uh, rose and it said that... Um, Others rose from their sleep. Yeah. Where were they? Um, I think that Jesus had a resurrection body and God allowed a few Old Testament believers to rise and walk around Jerusalem and be seen by people as a kind of sample of what's going to happen to everybody. It's just, there's only that one verse in the whole Bible that talks about it. And there's not one word in church history about it. It's so unusual if that happened. Why didn't people... Recorded, but I, for some reason it didn't. So it's there. Um, but but they were asleep. 
Yeah, but that's the common word that the Bible used when people die. But they weren't in hell. No, I don't think on Old Testament believers who died were not in hell. I think they were in, in the presence of God. So Jesus, in arguing with the Jewish opponents, could say, uh, he, he calls God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not God of the dead, but of the living. I think implies that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are living with God. And David says in Psalm 23, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I think they, 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 they it isn't a lot of verses there, but uh, Elijah uh, uh, was swept up into heaven to be with God. And, um, and Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So I think they're enjoying heaven now. Okay, good. One more way in back, and then we're going to sing. If you haven't been to the service yet with uh, O.S. Hawkins, it's a powerful sermon, so I don't want to have you miss it. Okay. I have a question about... Um, What's your name? My name's Jason. Jason. I have a question about uh, the possibility that Jesus bound Satan or not. Um, couldn't there maybe be other explanations as to why there's still evil in the world, even though Satan may have been bound? Couldn't there be um, demons, for example, that still exert yep. Yep. Uh, evil in the world? And can't people themselves make bad decisions, just yep. like you were saying, uh, during the time that Christ is on earth, people can still not believe? Yeah, yeah. You're right. Is it Jason? Yeah. Somebody could argue, look, there's still evil in the world. Even though Satan himself is is bound, maybe his demons are still around, and maybe there's just a lot of sin in people's lives. But I would, I think I would answer in two ways. I think that when the passage says that Satan is thrown into this pit, I think the implication is that all the demons who are working for him are thrown into the pit and, and removed from the earth too. Somebody might differ with that, so that's possibility. But then there are those other verses that talk about him actually, you know, the whole world is in the power of the evil one. Satan has blinded your heart to, to lie and stuff like that. It looks like he's still active. And yeah, there is still sin, but is there Satan? I think probably, yes. Well, more than probably, I'm, I'm sure there is still. Okay, okay good, good question.